Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, David White joins us. He's the founder and CEO of Irwin, a leading investor relations management platform. David is a former investment banker working with names like Credit Suisse and banking deals like Shopify. From his experience, he and his co-founder, Mark Faskin, saw the inefficiencies in investor relationship development. Now leading Irwin, David has thousands of IR clients using his software platform. This gives him insights into how to efficiently create and keep valuable investor relationships. A key takeaway is that investors want and need to see good deals. From 50 million to 50 billion in market cap, a call and an email aren't enough to earn their interest and their trust and ultimately their investment. It takes a process and a cutting edge software to identify, surveil, and build the right kind of investor base. Tools like Irwin enable you to do this and build those high value relationships that will actually move the needle. This interview is certainly valuable for CEOs and IR pros looking to enhance their IR programs. But we also get into David's experience raising capital for his own company and how this capital is helping accelerate his growth. Always so much to learn. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Corey. So, you know, I'm looking forward to our conversation as we've been in the world of IR and specifically for us, investor marketing. And when you collectively bring them together, there's a conversation I think we're going to have that's going to be, it's going to be super applicable to both our audiences. And, and that's kind of the CEOs and IR pros, as well as anybody else who's really curious about this finance world. But to start off with, I think it's best to get your background, where you came from and, and how you started Irwin. So what do you say? I'll hand it over to you and you can give us some some background. Cool. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me. Excited to be here today. So I started my career in finance about 12 years ago. I started investment banking. Prior to that, I had a few co-op terms in investment banking, sales and trading, and buy-side asset management, predominantly covering Canadian equities. But in earnest, I started on the investment banking side, mostly M&A, just sort of generalist at a Canadian investment banking boutique, strong focus on special sits, tech, and mining. And from there, I moved to the sales and trading side of the business. So I had exposure to the sales and trading side of the business through a co-op term at, at CIBC. And that exposure was, was on the event-driven sales and trading desk. So essentially, any kind of corporate actions that were active, 
we would essentially develop strategies to trade around them. And so it was, you know, pretty intellectually stimulating. We could build our own models. And so when I moved to Credit Suisse, they were looking for someone who had some investment banking expertise. And so we could build models and whatnot, but, you know, obviously cared about sort of a faster sort of transactional side of the business, which is sales and trade. And so landed there and learned a lot. So any kind of, you know, corporate action, so it could be, you know, merger arbitrage, spin outs, buybacks, any time that there was any kind of dislocation in the market, you know, rebalancing, we had put together ideas, we had a swap book to trade around, and we put that out. And so I learned a lot there. And Credit Suisse essentially decided to sort of retrench from that business and de-risk across the business and made me what I call sort of a plain vanilla equity salesperson. And my best sort of description of what that is, is, is someone who is responsible for putting investors and issuers uh, together. So corporate access, analyst access, that's the focus of the role. So that's really where I started my career. And ultimately, that's sort of where the genesis of Irwin came from. So I think that from a pre-call I had with one of your team members that from the sell side, you really started to see well, yeah, an opportunity of that dislocation between yeah. actually reaching out and, and starting to track investors. And so I don't want to get in too deep into Irwin right away. Like I do want to talk about it later because I think it's a super cool tool, but just give us a bit about it and a reason why you started building it. And I think it's going to lead into our larger conversation about IR. So yeah, can you give us a high level? Yeah, absolutely. So that business that I mentioned, Corporate Access, it's a massive business and it sort of flies under the hood. A lot of people don't see it. If you're driving around downtown Toronto or New York or Chicago during a uh, weekday, you'll see these big black suburban SUVs and that's mostly corporate access. So it's the CEOs and CFOs meeting with investors. And it's such a big and important business because, you know, if you were to allocate capital, you want to, you know, see the whites of the eyes of the managers of that business. So, you know, the stat is seven out of 10 portfolio managers want to meet with management before investing a dollar in the business. And so historically, investment banks have been essentially the toll booth for issuers to the rest of the market. So they've been the distribution. They know they've had the best data on the best investors to meet for that particular business. And so I got thrown into this business and quickly became frustrated with the inherent conflicts of interest in it. So the big one is that the investors that I was putting our issuers in front of were not necessarily the best investors for the issuers meaning that they, you know, weren't long term, you know, traded a lot, weren't necessarily, you know, long only. And so, you know, I got frustrated with a lot of the issuers saying, Dave, why are we meeting with, you know, XYZ fund and me not having a good answer? And the real answer is that, well, they pay us a lot of money because they trade. So there's that real disconnect and friction there. And I, I really felt that growing over my four years at, at Credit Suisse. Add to that is sort of... um the advent of a regulation called MIFID II. So MIFID II stands for Markets in Financial Instruments Directive II. It's a European-born regulation out of the, you know, in the wake of 2008-2009 financial crisis. And it's very broad in scope. But as it relates to this conversation in Irwin, what it effectively said was no longer can you know, the products that the investors are buying, the products and services that the investors are buying, and paying for uh, from the investment banks, no longer can those be priced implicitly, meaning bundled in with the trading commission. So, you know, investment banks provide a variety of services. So like corporate access being a big one, 
And historically, those services are paid for via trading commissions. And so what the European Securities Markets Authority said was, well, that's not good enough. That's not transparent. We can't audit. And not only can we not, but the ultimate investors in these funds cannot audit what the money managers are spending the money on in terms of, you know, research and, you know, making investments. And so they advocated for more transparency. And a big part of that was saying, okay, well, no longer can it be implicit, it needs to be explicit. So if you're going to meet with a company, you're going to do, you know, you're going to have sales coverage, you're going to have analyst access, all these sorts of things have to be priced and explicit. And so what that did is it really turned the revenue model for capital markets upside down. And, you know, specifically, it turned research from a cost center into a revenue center. And the investment banks largely realized that it wasn't going to be economic. And so what that did was put significant pressure on the issuers to essentially do things that they didn't have to do. So they had to be much more proactive as it relates to investor relations, which is certainly very broad in scope. So the effect of investment banks dropping coverage, no longer providing those nice services that were largely for free to the issuer. And again, that just put a much greater pressure or onus on, on the issuer to do it. We'll get into sort of the, I guess, how that impacts IR today. But I really felt this pain. And so as a result of some of these changes, even though MIFID II is a European-born regulation, it had global consequences. And it had global consequences because investment management is largely a global business, right? You have RBC GAM and Fidelity. Those are global businesses. So they tend to abide by the strictest rule of law. The other thing is capital markets in general is a fairly archaic business. It's an old world business. And so the buy side really took advantage of this, this shift more in spirit of the law. And they said, okay, well, no longer are we going to deal with 125, 150 even counterparties. And we're going to cut that down to 20. And so if you're one of those investment banks and you're bringing you know, XYZ company through town, if you're not on that list of 20, then we're not going to take the meeting. And, you know, that's our problem. That's the issuer's problem. It's your problem, but it's just what we're going to do. If the issuer wants to reach out outside of your network, then sure. And so that effectively, you know, it took the toll booth mentality and functionality away from the investment bank. And so I was sitting there saying, there are a lot of forces at work here that are playing against me. And I already felt, you know, not as valuable as I did when I was in the, on the adventure and desk making, you know, what I felt to be at least well-researched calls. Um, and so add to that these pressures and functions. And it was clear that, you know, there wasn't really room for me or, you know, my peers or other banks in this equation. So from that, you know, these changes that get forced upon, what did you see, like, how did the industry change? And then like, what was that catalyst for you to say, I think we can build some technology for this and start to connect people and, and provide that corporate access? Well, there's a few things. So the industry, I like to sort of give an analogy that speaks to sort of the archaicness of the industry. And, and that analogy is this. So if you were to teleport a trader from the 1990s to now, they would be very uncomfortable because the vast amount of the innovation in capital markets has gone towards trading innovation, right? Trading institutions, to make it faster, cheaper, everything like that. But if you did the same for IR or corporate development or banking or research, uh, many other functions, everyone would be largely pretty comfortable. And so that's a problem, right? Because a lot of the, you know, the world has changed. The requirements of those roles has changed, but the, the workflows, the technologies have not changed. And frankly, a lot of the innovations have come to similar roles. I mean, IR will talk about this, but 
you know, is largely a sales role today. And there's many innovations in sales. It just hasn't come to capital markets. So that was my big realization, even when I was a co-op student, that, hey, there are a lot of obvious improvements here that can be yielded via technology. And then as it relates to IR, I mean, this MIFID 2 was certainly a significant tailwind. It definitely gave people an excuse to take a deeper look at the, how they're you know, conducting business, how they're interacting with their counterparties. And it was clear that there was a big shift going on. And so, again, I felt this frustration and I felt that there was a big opportunity to get ahead of it. And so since then, this was about six years ago, even when we launched the first version of Irwin, you know, we would go around and, you know, meet with various CEOs and CFOs and show them Irwin. They're like, yeah, no, this is great. But, you know, we're pretty well covered by our banks and supplemented by, you know, what we have in our sales spreadsheet. Today, or fast forward to today, I can confidently say that every one of those initial conversations, they're all clients, right? Because that pain has not only continued, but accelerated. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's that early product market fit, right? And I mean, this is the thing, like I saw you guys probably five years ago and, you know, it was pretty preliminary. And then just before this interview that we're doing now, I said, you know, give me a demo. Let's see where you guys are at. And it's really neat to see how far you've come. And so like, you know, for an entrepreneur, good on you. I mean, it's not easy, right? Like it's, it's a full contact sport, right? And so I think you went from 10 people to over 100 now. So there's something, you know, big, you guys are obviously doing something right there. Yeah, it's a lot. Someone gave me really good advice early on, in just building a business in general, or maybe even tackling a problem. And that advice was essentially to not look too far into the future. Everyone will build these big, audacious goals around revenue or client count or usage, whatever it is how you measure your business. And what often happens when you do that is you suffer from some form of paralysis. You're like, well, I'm here today. How do I get there? And so their advice, super simple, but I think about it pretty much every day, which is just to put one foot in front of the other and just wake up every day and try to add incremental value to the business. And so that's a big part of our ethos as a company because those small steps can yield and compound amazingly well. So we have a saying where... You know, we try to add 1% or do work smarter or harder, whatever it is, 1% per day. And that compounds, I think, the function is 37 times a year. I really like that you're actually saying this because it's something that I've been thinking about and uh, about the compounding interest of just the, the, the smallest little improvements. And, you know, it could be the habit of picking up the phone to make two fresh phone calls, three fresh phone calls a week to build your network that could lead to, I mean, it's incremental, but that is what adds up. And then to uh, mirror your point about not having long-term forecasts, Marcello Batoli, who's the former CEO of Louis Vuitton and Samsonite was on the podcast. And he came and just said, he's like, your long-term forecasts, they're worthless. Here's how I did it. And so, you know, he turned Samsonite from a, a $450 million acquisition to an, a one point, I think, $1.3 or $4 billion sale two years later by not sitting there and getting drowned and, you know, what needs to be done tomorrow? Let's get her done. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. just, it's cool to hear. Yeah, it can be a terrifying sort of mountain. And I mean, every day, every business, there are problems, right? And someone once said, you know, the, the value of business is the sum of all problems solved. And I couldn't agree with that statement, you know, anymore. The other thing that we've been talking a lot about internally is, is, is that function of not looking too far in the future, but also the realization that whatever your goals are, and of course, it's important to have goals, but 
it's extremely rare that they're ever achieved in a linear fashion, right? So you may have this great vision of being whatever the best at whatever your industry is. So let's say in our industry, IR software, but what, what does that really mean? Like, what are the steps that you take to get there? And the honest answer is no one really knows. And the only way that you get there is you try and you just take steps forward, right? You try, you iterate. And the key is to shorten or I guess increase the learning cycle, right? Try something, doesn't work, iterate, try again, right? Because either way, they're, you know, you're going to get an answer and that's ultimately what you're going for. So that's, again, a big part of how we've, how we built the business. And I think the difficulty now is as we continue to grow, how do we maintain that within, you know, every department, you know, where Mark and I aren't there to maintain that culture. So something that's that keenly top of mind for us. Yeah, excellent. Let's talk IR. I want to get your take on it because, I mean, the work you do, you get a really interesting perspective of all the clients that you have, all the, the people you work with who use your, your platform. And within that, it's you're tackling what is a very interesting and changing industry. And, you know, it's actually Paige and I were talking, one of your team members, about just how exciting it is in the world of IR and investor marketing, because it's finally catching up. And so yeah. tell me about that. What are you seeing? Well, maybe let's take a step back and I'll sort of enlighten you as to how we think about IR and how, how we view it. So IR, I think, is a much bigger problem than most people realize. Frankly, it's a much bigger problem than I think I realized even you know within the last few years. So if you take a company and essentially break it out into two different stakeholder groups, the first stakeholder group, you know, it could be customers and employees, right? So sort of the, the folks on the, on the front line, so to speak. The second st- stakeholder group, investors and capital providers, right? So those are essentially the two main stakeholder groups required for innovation, right? And they need each other in some way, shape or form to scale. The sort of unspoken truth is that the second stakeholder group being investors, capital providers, that takes up about 20% of management's time. So it effectively acts as a tax on that first stakeholder group, right? And potentially even a tax on innovation, even though it is required. So, you know, we envision a world where we can take that 20% down to 15%, down to 10%, maybe even five, and what that impact can be on that first stakeholder group. The other thing is, you know, over the last five years, there's been a very loud rhetoric about public versus private. And the common conversation is, okay, well, public is broken because it's expensive, it's distracting. And so let's just fix private, right? Let's make that more efficient. And then companies don't have to go public. And so I think that's really misaligned for a few reasons. One, public markets from an infrastructure perspective, not from a pricing efficiency perspective, but from an infrastructure perspective, they're extremely efficient, right? I think we, we really don't realize how efficient public markets are. And so private markets, for sure, less efficient. There are always disadvantages and advantages to being public or private. And so I think that as a result of that, there will be efficiency that comes to private markets. Lots of smart people, very well-funded companies are working on that problem. I think what people are forgetting is that when it does come, you know, you're going to have a lot more money, you're going to have a lot more participants, and it's going to look a lot like public markets, right? Because the regulars are going to come in. And they're going to say, well, you have to report at some cadence and there has to be some level of transparency and communication, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what does that amount to? It amounts to the exact same problem in public markets, right? It's IR. And so that's how we think about the world, right? Like things are certainly becoming more efficient across, call it these sort of asset classes. 
But let's focus on the real problem, which is this distraction, this cost that's inhibiting companies from, you know, being on their front toes and their front feet with their customers and their employees. And ultimately, I think if we can solve that or at least contribute to that, then we're contributing to, you know, faster innovation. The other thing is outside of call it company IR, there is fund IR, right? LP, GP, so limited partner, general partner IR. That is a big problem, right? That there's there's a lot of friction in that system that, again, ultimately slows down innovation if, you know, funds aren't getting funded at the right rate and then companies aren't getting funded. Like it's, a, it's a real knock-on effect. So those are areas that are very interesting to us. We've started in public market IR because, frankly, that's, you know, that was our domain expertise. There were significant regulatory changes, as we discussed, that were causing a lot of pain. There's a product gap in the market. But again, we see it beyond that. I would say six years into this, we would have thought that we would have tackled a few other customer segments. But as we just, it's like an onion, as we unpeel the layers of this public market IR, we just uncover more and more challenges. So, you know, we really want to stay focused on our core customer base and make sure that we're nailing that. Well, you know, you say six years, but what do they say? Like an overnight success takes at least five years? Yeah. Yeah. So you're well on your way. In the complexities of the market, I think that you're on point with the the differences there between the public and private markets. And, you know, I think we actually take it for granted how efficient, as you put it, the infrastructure is there to be able to move capital in and out. But then how about relationships, though? And like you talk about the whites of their eyes, and this is where I like to get to, because I think there's the way I view it is that in investor relations and investor marketing, it's very similar to that of selling a product. So you have a, you have a marketing funnel and that marketing funnel brings you into some conversion point. If it's all digital, then it's a sales point and that's your point of sale, or you end up having a conversation with somebody and you now in the car industry, you go to buy a car the average consumer of a car knows more than the salesperson representing it. And so how is that happening? How can that be applied to IR and in what elements are there? And then for issuers, what should they know about this kind of sea change that's happening? Yeah, so IR, you the nail on the head. IR, capital markets in general, I mean, it is a massive relationship-driven business. It's something that I think is in, it's just a sort of an insider secret within capital markets how much relationships matter. I would say, again, because of these changes, it's presented a greater opportunity for companies to maintain and strengthen these relationships and really take hold of their shareholder base. And what that ultimately means is that they're taking hold of their cost of capital. To me, there are essentially two, I mean, there are many inputs to cost of capital, but for the purposes of this conversation, there are really two. It's one, is your business good? Does it require a lot of capital to you know, earn a certain return? Second one is, do the people that are giving the, the capital, do they believe in you? Right. And so the more that they can believe in you, the more that you find long-term partnership-oriented investors that aren't going to sell in the quarter because you missed slightly by revenue or whatever expectations, the lower your cost of capital is going to be, which then enables you to grow faster and enables you to deploy capital in a more efficient way and hopefully become that business that your shareholders want you to be. But it can be very much a well orchestrated process and dynamic where, you know, a lot of people think, okay, we're public now. What will be will be as it relates to our shareholder base. But it's just totally not the case, right? You largely have the ability to control the vast majority of your shareholder base 
And there needs to be a lot of thought and strategy that goes into that. And then there needs to be a lot of relationship management to maintain and build on that through time. And so it's not a quick process. I was actually listening to a podcast recently with the president of Shopify, and he was talking about the same thing. And ironically, I was actually one of the bankers that helped take Shopify public at Credit Suisse. And so he was talking about how specific they were about how they built their shareholder base. And most of those shareholders that they brought on or that they handpicked continue to be long-term shareholders today. So not everyone has that. I want to weigh in on that because I don't think CEOs in the markets, whether it be, you know, Shopify is just, you know, what became a great market darling there. And what a success story all the way down to, to the juniors and these micro caps where there's this, well, some of them, they go public and it's like, they're all of a sudden wake up and like, oh, we're public now. Like, where did the thought go into like, you know, you have a second business you're running now. You have to be out there engaging with your potential customers, your investors. And so I see that. And it's interesting to hear, and I would like to hear that podcast from Spotify or from the Spotify CEO about actually being really deliberate about building your shareholder base. And maybe you can speak to that. How do you go about that? Like, what are those conversations like? Yeah, well, I mean, for us, it starts at the data level. So to say, okay, what kind of company are we now? What kind of company do we want to be? And conversely, what kind of investors fit our mold now and in the future? And so every company has a certain life cycle. I think it's really important to be honest with yourself about where you sit in your, in your maturity and your life cycle and what that aligns with as it relates to investors, right? So very often, you know, to use your example, we'll see small companies looking to go after, you know, the Black Rocks of the, of the world. And not only, you know, mathematically does that not make sense, but relationship-wise, it just doesn't make sense. And so there has to be a well-documented and thought-out strategy that aligns with your maturity as a company, as well as your opportunity set. So if you are a value, sort of value company where you're not going to trade at whatever 20 times earnings or, or whatever it is, then you have to be honest with yourself about that and align with the right investors. And so for us, it starts with that conversation, that realization, and then deploying that strategy. I mean, there are so many different ways. The common sort of jargon for that would be investor targeting. So going out and saying, okay, given this crit- these criteria, we want to find who could be the right investors for us. It's very much a dating game. And I think one thing that companies shy away from is or or maybe just don't understand is that investors don't have time to look at every company. And just because you're public, that doesn't mean that they're going to know who you are and what your story is, what your vision is, what your angle is. And so it takes time to market that, right? And you have to be very careful about your time and resources in that marketing to ensure that you're getting a return on it. And again, that's where it starts at the data level for us. Now, once you've come in, from a data level, you're able to target in on on the actual kind of companies, or excuse me, the the funds or the capital that would be interested in wherever you are as a company. And I think the key point there is being honest with yourself. You know, BlackRock is not going to look at you. And, you know, mathematically, I think that's another great point. But once you see and you say, okay, this is where we're at. These are the kind of people we should be going after. How do you go about that? And And from what you've seen, what are the best practices in starting to initiate and build relationships? And what I want to add, though, is that 
it's not an event, it's a process. So what does that process look like from your perspective? Yeah, no, you, you definitely hit the nail on the head. It is a process. Again, I think companies very much shy away from this, what is effectively a sales and marketing motion. And sending one email, making one phone call is just never going to be good enough. It just isn't. Um, the hit rate that we see as it relates to you know targeting investor and uh, investor relationship building, it takes at least five or six you know outbound calls or emails to just start the conversation. And then from there, it takes at least three or four meetings for them to make a decision. And some investors won't invest for one or two years to come. Right? They'll just they'll say, okay, we'll follow you and we'll build a relationship from there. And so... It is a long-tailed game. And I think, again, realizing that it's just like sales where you want to fill the top of the funnel with as many you know, prospects as possible, build your pipeline, and then it gets it inevitably gets whittled down to a few. Yeah, I want to bring that over. Like a friend of mine is, she's a remarkable saleswoman and has gone out there and she's gone whale hunting and has been able to like bring down Walmart and Nordstrom's and like, you know, you name the list of big, big names in retail, which she targets. And as an example, she just, she continues to keep in touch with these people. And the other day she gets a call out of the blue and says, Hey, listen, I actually moved over to this company now and we have budget for this. So let's do this. Close the deal two years later. But it was that constant touch, right? The same thing's going to happen for fund managers. And I think the, that it's really important to realize that between marketing and sales that, when you apply them to business, they're applied to to building relationships with investors. It's almost an identical formula. Yeah, it really, it really is. And I think, again, I want to get this point across. Companies don't realize that investors feel that way as well. Right? They really want to build that relationship. You know, a lot of the best investments come from that. So the more that you can you know, give them the tools, give them the information so that they can then make that decision as to whether they're going to, they're going to you know, embark on a relationship with you, the better, right? Like if you're not being transparent about something or not being concise or consistent in your messaging with the idea of, okay, let's try to build as much of an audience as possible. It just doesn't work, right? You really want to focus on filling that funnel with the right targets, spend your time there. And that's really where you're going to get the ROI. And again, they think about it the same way. So ultimately, if you can lower that that essentially that time to acquisition, the better. Now bring us back to some of the best practices you see IR pros or their IROs out there do and, and how they work with their CEOs and CFOs. Like what have you seen has worked really well? So IR, I think as a result of these changes, IR is really the persona of IR has changed. And I think it's going to change even more. And, and to give an example of that, if you look at the HR industry. If you rewind back to 2010 or around there, HR was known as HR and something changed, right? And it went through this transition where it became sort of realized that it was more important to the health of the business, the employees, the culture, everything like that, which was just you know, really the foundation for moving the business forward. And so as a result, HR's name even changed. And so now it's people and culture. And so I think the same phenomenon is going on right now within IR. I think there are some folks uh, within finance that even see think of IR as a, as a dirty word. So maybe maybe that will change. Who knows? But as a result, the persona has changed. And so 
five, six, seven years ago, IR was very much, or at least more of a communications administrative and PR based role. And now it's very much a sales strategy analytics based role. And so you've seen the sophistication of the folks that sit in that seat really, really level up, right? So it's very common to see, you know, a former managing director from name your bank now have that IR seat. And so I think the realization within these organizations is that IR has become and continues to become much more of a mission critical function of a public company's success. And so those investments are being made. And, you know, again, there's been a lot of change since we even started this business and IROs have much more of a seat at the table than I think they ever did. And I think that's going to continue. And it's not uncommon to see, you know, an IRO become the CFO, become the CEO. So it's really interesting to see how, you know, for a public company, the relationships with investors can really drive the future of the business. And so that's obviously IRs in the hot seat. Interesting. What about the... I mean, I think it it changes by market cap and by how large the companies are in the market. But what about the differences between retail and institutional investors? And when you hear those two words come together, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, I saw this chart, actually, I think this morning, and it was dating back to the 1960s to now. And it was essentially showing the dispersion of retail investors versus institutional investors from that date until now as it relates to the U.S. equity markets. And so in the 1960s or 70s, whatever it was, retail investors made up about 76% of the market, the remainder being institutional. And what's happened is those two have converged. And I believe it's now about 50-50, right? So I would say over the last few years, that has become more and more apparent where companies are waking up to the fact that retail continues to be important. Not, you know, and shouldn't be taken lightly. Obviously, it's not 76% of, you know, the equity markets, but still continues to be a significant portion. And so as it relates to the two strategies, I mean, they are, they are different, right? Obviously, different levels of sophistication, of term, of amount. And so strategies have to be built around that. Again, for us, it starts with being honest about who you are, what your shareholder base looks like, what you want to look like given, you know, the opportunities ahead of you. And so there are various tools of which Erwin has many to identify, you know, your shareholder base, what it looks like, what you can do with it, how to communicate with them. What I would say is that when I was in investment banking and and sales and trading, again, retail was sort of an afterthought and everyone was after the institutional money. And there's been a big, I would say, change or convergence in that where it's sort of going back to, hey, no, these, these people do matter. and they can be fantastic long-term shareholders. You know, that may be amazing to, you know, help you get a vote across the line or whatever it is. So I would say definitely a realization. And so I think the technologies and the services and whatnot haven't quite kept up, but I think there's a good future for that. Very cool. Let's change gears. We can talk about your, your recent equity raise, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about it. You recently raised a Series A and have now really accelerated your growth, which congratulations. I mean, that's not a, a small event. So good on you. But tell us more about that. Yeah, sure. So yeah, we closed a US $20 million round with K1 Investment Management last year, middle of last year. So K1 is a Los Angeles-based growth equity firm with about $15 billion in assets under management. So we weren't 
particularly looking for capital. We weren't necessarily in need of it, which is obviously the best time to be looking for capital. And as you know, you know, cost of capital was fairly cheap, right? This was the height of the markets in 2021. And so we had increasingly so various growth initiatives ahead of us that, you know, we could have gone to either way, but in our business, and I guess in most businesses, I think time is the biggest competitor. So if we could take on inexpensive capital to get us there faster, then it seemed like a really good decision and certainly has proven to be a really good decision. You know, we were fortunate to have a few options and, you know, who we partnered with. And we ended up going with K1, given their exclusive focus in B2B SaaS, given their size and ability to help if needed on, you know, operations and whatnot. And so far, it's been an amazing partnership. You know, we still, of course, control the day-to-day and the decisions and whatnot. But if they're there, if we need help, then they're there. So I would say when Mark and I started the business, we were quite gun-shy in terms of raising capital. I had seen, you know, it done improperly, and that's largely what we're talking about. It can really cripple businesses. And Mark comes from the you know, software, enterprise software world where he's seen the same thing. So we were very careful about when we took capital and who we took it from. And we've been very deliberate in that. And I think it's served us really well. It's given us a lot of optionality as we grow the business. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, it's nice to have that partner. And that's something that is just so important is, again, I mean, okay, we're talking VC now, but it's it's finding the right shareholder, the right investor. And how did you approach that? What was the, you know, did you have a list and you just start dialing for dollars? Did you have ins? You know, what was that? And did you actually, were you actually able to build some tension between a couple of, uh, banks and say, hey, listen, you know, you might have not even gone with the best valuation, but you went with the best opportunity. What was that all like? Yeah, so how it shook out, we got approached by two much larger strategic entities with the idea of a full acquisition. And we said, you know, it's it's way too early. There's a lot more that we want to do if we ever want to sell the business at all, frankly. And so that sort of at least got us thinking about, you know, how can we accelerate you know, our sort of path to success. Now, we have raised other rounds of capital, and I think it's important to distinguish between the two because the earlier rounds were, I would say, much more difficult, right? Because we had fewer proof points, much smaller business, and, you know, likely harder to see what the business would become. This time around, again, it certainly correlated with pretty healthy markets, but also private equity is, especially enterprise SaaS private equity, is a very busy place these days. And so there's a lot of capital on the sidelines that hasn't been deployed. I probably get an email a day from venture capital private equity, most of it being out of the US. So we said, okay, let's take a look what this could look like. Um, you know, met with, I conduct IR myself, of course, and manage a CRM of who I've been talking to and, and when and what's relevant, what's not. And so we said, okay, let's, let's have these conversations and get to know who's out there and, and what's, what's available. And so we did that. We ended up with five separate term sheets, all from U.S. firms. And the distinction between K1 and the other firms was largely that K1 from an AUM perspective was the biggest. And you would tend to think, okay, well, that usually shouldn't be what you go for, right? You want a smaller manager who's going to be, you know, more willing to roll up their their sleeves and, and really help your business succeed. 
But what we found was that the other firms that we got term sheets from were, you know, one or two billion dollar firms. And, you know, we were dealing with the managing partner or the founder of the firm. And the fact of the matter is, is that at least in our view, those firms or those individuals have already made their money, right? They, they've already made their money across, you know, several different investments, several different years. And the partner that we were dealing with at K1 was fairly young and hadn't proven himself. And so what we did, we called him up and said, Hey, what would happen? His name's Tarun. We said, Hey, Tarun, what would happen if you made this investment and it didn't work out? And he was like, I'd be screwed. It could be career threatening. Really perfect. That's exactly what we want because then you're in the same seat with us. Right. And so from there on, I mean, we, it's kind of funny. His, while he's, you know, in LA, his wife is Canadian. So he delivered a term sheet to us on a park bench in Mississauga. And from then on, it's been an amazing partnership. That's a really interesting take and kind of how you approach that. And, and just a, you know, a different nuance to sussing out who you really want to work with. So, uh, yeah, good on him for taking a bet. Yeah, it's ultimately, I guess you did think of it as IR, right? And thinking about who you want as your, within your cap table, your shareholder base. And so for us, we wanted someone who, was hungry and you know relatively young and was going to be around the table for a long time. So yeah, I think we got lucky. So I'm curious, 20 million for this recent raise, and what did you learn from that? Right, like I'm sure if you look back on it now, there's probably something you learned and say, hey, this is an experience. Maybe I could have done this differently. I mean, it sounds like it's working out really well, but but is there something there where you look and you go, I think I would have done this differently. Well, I'll answer that second question once I think about it a little bit. What I learned is that certainly timing is very important. And so IR, while you don't need to transact all the time, IR is constant. So today, we don't need money. And, you know, I have many things to be focusing on, but I still carve out a certain portion of my days or weeks to dedicate to IR. And that's not just with our current shareholders, that's with new potential shareholders. So I will meet with new funds and get to know them, they get to know us. And then, you know, we sort of get to track each other. And, and ultimately, it, it's about, you know, hitting that bid at the right time, right? And but in order to do that, you need to put in the work early and often. So that's something that I think was a big learning for me from the previous rounds and might have contributed to the success of the last round. Something that we that I would do differently. I mean, there are, it's really tough to say, I mean, there are a lot of things that I would, I guess, on the surface, say that I'd do differently, but you know, it's, it's led us here. I would say keeping a really tight process is really important. So identifying, okay, by this date, then we'll have achieved this milestone. I think that it will, I mean, from term sheet to close, it was a month and a half. And, you know, within that month and a half, you have massive risk, right? You have market risk, you have execution risk, financing risk on their end. And so I think the fact that we were able to close it so quickly was a product of us being organized, right? And having all of our ducks in a row. And so the diligence piece of it was insane, right? They literally took our business, turned it upside down and shook as hard as they could and see what falls. And so the fact that we had everything organized already, I think made it really easy, but no, it's intense. I mean, they have their US lawyers, Canadian lawyers, engineering auditors, actual auditors, their team, our team. It's a wild process, but certainly helps to make us a better business that, you know, is ready for the next scaling event. Yeah. You know, something I say often is when it comes to raising capital, whether it be through bankers or through VCs or whoever, private equity, is it's a user experience. 
you have to deliver them a seamless user experience. So when they come into your virtual deal room, it's just easy. It's just there. And there's no hangups. There's nothing that's going to cause them to start to scratch their head and then you know take a pause and call you the next day. It just enables momentum to flow. And it sounds like you guys, you guys really nailed it. Well, I think we had the benefit of a few things. One, we had raised capital before, so we we're familiar with that motion. Two, obviously, the capital markets experience I've, I've seen, been on both sides of the table and seeing how that works. But I think that what's interesting now is that we work very closely with them on evaluating other opportunities. So given they have you know, a pretty significant sort of balance sheet, so to speak, obviously, $20 million isn't a lot of money relative to you know, their AUM. And so when, you know, the opportunity arises, they want to be able to invest more capital. And so as part of that, we do look at various M&A opportunities for our business. And so that's been nice because we get to see sort of their thought process as it relates to investing. And then, you know, we get to learn from that and position ourselves accordingly for maybe the next raise, the next transaction or whatever it is. Awesome, man. Let's talk about the growth that's coming from that. And the reason why I'm going to bring it up is because you've really accelerated the growth. The size of your team is booming now, right? And how have you had to adapt to that and manage that? And as a CEO, what have you experienced? I mean, yeah, you're right. 110 people or so is a big enough sample size of people that inevitably life is just going to happen to those people, right? They're going to um, you know, get married, divorced, have kids, die, all these sorts of things. It just, it's life. And so I think even dealing with that is a big learning experience um, and something that we've had to learn to manage and, and ultimately scale. As a part of that, I think the most important part is bringing on really, really strong managers. And so a big focus for us is bringing on essentially entrepreneurs within our own business. We look for people who want to be entrepreneurs. And whether they leave to go start their own business or not, it doesn't really matter. Like we're super encouraging. I think we've had two or three employees leave to start their own business, which is amazing. But if they want to get a taste of entrepreneurship, we're a great place to do that, right? And so whether it's marketing or sales or product or whatever, we want to arm them with the necessary tools, accountability, but also flexibility to build their own business within a business. And I think that's been really, really important because otherwise it's just too hard to properly, you know, build a culture of entrepreneurship if you don't have those kinds of people at the helm. That's an interesting one of building that culture, one of maintaining that entrepreneurial mindset and not just falling into a status quo. And yeah, so that's a neat point of culture there. Yeah, and it's really hard. And I think, you know, you see these job descriptions and I remember doing this when I was you know, applying to jobs and, you know, they all say, and whether it's a big bank or whatever company, they all say they, they look for entrepreneurs and, and it, it is a very different world than a typical role because you have to be very comfortable with uncertainty, with taking bets, with emotional volatility. That's a big run, right? There are going to be a lot of high highs, a lot of low lows. And the best thing to do is keep it as flat as possible because it is a long game to your earlier point. The other thing that we, the thing that we promise in return for those attributes, we promise a steep learning curve that stays steep, right? So we've all, you know, landed a new job and said, okay, how do we do this job? And all oh, there's so much to learn and whatnot. That's a steep learning curve. And that's one thing I love about finance. But what I found at least was that it flattens out pretty quickly. And so when that happens, obviously you get 
reticent and bored and unmotivated and whatnot. And so we endeavor to keep that learning curve as steep as possible. The thing is, is that that's not right for everyone, right? And if you're not truly entrepreneurial, it can be very, very uncomfortable. And so that's where we're lucky in sort of weeding those people out as quickly as possible. And again, it's no no harm, no foul, right? But we're going to deliver an, an environment for you to you know flourish as an entrepreneur within our business. You have to make sure that you're ready for it. And not everyone is. That's, that's a cool one. James, member of your team, was saying the diversity of your team along with a meritocracy in which you all work. And so I think that you know, you're building on that point that I heard from him. And yeah, it's like, and it, the entrepreneurial world and the volatility and even the emotional volatility and working in an environment like that where people put themselves on the line and then emotionally get there and, and that's what motivates them. And, and they're going to, you know, perhaps even argue for it in a way that can become uncomfortable. But sometimes you need that. A hundred percent you need that. I don't think you can have one without the other. And by that, I mean, you, I don't think you can have meritocracy without, you know, entrepreneurship, right? Otherwise, the, the two just don't work otherwise. So, you know, if you take James as an example, he was our fifth employee. So he's, he's a senior account executive on our sales team. And, you know, he really jumped into it, you know, feet first and was in a very similar position that we were early on where we really knew nothing. We were just trying, as I said, just put one foot in front of the other. And like James and many other people are, as a result, they are entrepreneurs, right? He has had to figure it out as we go and continues to do so. And using him again as an example, you know, I know he came from another company that also scaled very quickly. And I think that somewhat, you know, was, was a little bit uncomfortable for him. Now we're in that position where he was an early employee. Now we're a bigger company. And so I think it's been awesome to see sort of his maturity and others as well, of course, as we've really morphed as a company, right? The things that you can do and as a 5% company, very different now, and I'm sure very different in the future as well. Awesome. Awesome. So I'm looking at time here. I want to wrap up with a few more questions. One thing I did not want to do was have a sales pitch of an interview about Irwin. And, and I'm really glad we didn't. But now I want to take a deeper dive into the company itself. And so can you just give us the like the elevator pitch? And that's going to drive us into a couple of questions that I have for you. And we'll wrap up with that. So elevator pitch on Erwin. What do you guys do? Ultimately, our ethos is about saving time, right? So we are within investor relations. We are a software and data provider that allows our users to save time. And that spans across various functions and workflows uh, that we can get into. But again, if we go back to what we're looking to do, take that 20% down to 15, down to 10. And so a lot of that, you know, that productivity gain is really gained through data insight and really easy to use software, which is something that I think is talked a lot about, not necessarily always executed on. It's super hard software. I mean, I'm not an engineer. I lead our product team as well. So I've certainly learned something, but software is very much an art, right? I, I firmly believe that if we hired you know, Michael Bloomberg and whoever else has built an amazing, you know, financial data software product and put them all in the room. I don't think that that would necessarily amount to what most people would think it is. It's really about the team, how they work together, how they find problems, how they solve problems. And that is then the product of those functions is then the product. And so that is sort of borne by the user experience. That's something that, you know, we compete on quite a bit with our 
competitors, which are you know much larger, older, archaic incumbents. And so that then is then underpinned by really solid data and insights that can ultimately allow our users to get the job done faster. Yeah. And, you know, the old Bloomberg terminals that you had to like crank into, you know, a dedicated terminal you'd have in the office there. I remember having to try to figure out how to use one of those. It was a disaster. So so now... I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, no, but Bloomberg is an amazing, it's an amazing company. I've really grown in a huge appreciation for what they do and, and how they do it. They certainly have built some amazing moats. For sure, their user experience is archaic, but, you know, the coding system, once you learn, it's actually pretty efficient. So I think there are things to be learned from yeah, Bloomberg, that's a good point. right? From the more call it modern software companies like a HubSpot or, or something like that. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is build a product that includes attributes of a Bloomberg terminal, you know, a Zoom Info product, and a HubSpot altogether. Yeah, and from that, one of the things I like is that access to information to start to dial in and actually build meaningful relationships and, and take those offline is what, the way I see it and the way I've always kind of been attracted to the product was from an IR standpoint, how can you identify who's actually going to be interested in what you're doing and go out there and start to develop a relationship with them and get in front of them? I mean, that's what you need to do. And so the question that, that comes for me then is, the power users, the users you look at and go, they kill on this platform. Like they would not get rid of it for the world. What do they do? How do they run about it? So for the power users, Irwin is their source of truth, right? So it's a source of truth for various functions of their business. So one would be shareholder ownership. So Irwin in North America, we can provide our clients with the most accurate and comprehensive shareholder monitoring information available anywhere. So better than Bloomberg, better than our more direct competitors. We do that by bringing in various other data sets that are somewhat available, not always available, make it really clean and put it all together. So that's one. Two, from a source of truth perspective, is their relationships. So who have they spoken to? Who do they know? When did they last meet with them? Who across the team has communicated with them? What else do they own? What do they care about? What jobs do they have before? All these sorts of things are super important in defining how you attack the relationship. So from a, I would say to sort of summarize what we do for our power users, they realize that there are a lot of moving parts in IR, right? Across, across data, across relationships. And so it's just too much to house in multiple places. And so we house it in one place. So for example, when you buy Irwin from day one, you have access to a terabyte of data. And so the analogy that I like to give is comparing us to a typical sort of CRM product. A CRM product, like a HubSpot or a Salesforce, there are hundreds of them. Those are what we call empty house CRMs because buy the house, it's empty. The onus is on you to furnish it with your own furniture and then maintain that through wear and tear. So furniture being data and wear and tear being turnover and attrition. With us, you buy the house and it's fully furnished. And it's fully furnished based on what kind of user you are, what kind of company you are. You can add, edit, remove furniture and whatnot but it's also maintained by us. And so the, the statistics behind the cost, both in actual dollar terms and time in maintaining a CRM, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. And so I actually think the future of CRM as a whole, just not just capital market CRM, the future of CRM as a whole is going to be about you know, a fully furnished CRM, fully furnished house. That's a really interesting take. And I mean, I love the value proposition you have there, but when you look at it, 
providing the fully furnished house to a certain industry from a CRM standpoint is hell of a lot more powerful than just providing the, the tool to start populating. Yeah. And if you think about what, you know, companies like Zoom Info, Zoom Info is an incredible company. It's like a $20 billion US software data company. And for the most part, that data is getting plugged into the Salesforce and HubSpots of the world for thousands of companies. So you have to imagine that at some point, someone's going to go, okay, well, one plus one should equal three. And so I think that I actually have some information on this, that Salesforce was really interested in LinkedIn before Microsoft bought them. And you can understand why, right? LinkedIn houses all this information about you and me and everyone else. Why not have that automatically populate into the world's biggest CRM? Mm-hmm. Wow. Awesome. Just looking at time here. I've really enjoyed this. Do you have any final thoughts for the audience and for, uh, yeah, and please share your contact information and on everyone. Yeah, I think final thoughts wise, I think IR is a really exciting place to be. So for any IROs out there sort of thinking about their future, I think there's a lot to come. Or for those you know considering IR, I think that the scope of it is going to expand. I think the importance of it is going to continue to expand. So definitely a good place to be. I also recognize that it can be pretty daunting, right? IROs, they wear a lot of hats. They're super busy. And I think they also suffer from that sort of paralysis of, I just have too much to do. Just, you know, the, the goals are too big, all that sort of stuff. And so my final thoughts would be make sure that you set your strategy, but just take it day by day, put one foot in front of the other. And I think that's really what's going to yield the most success. Nice. David, thanks so much and congrats on your success. Yeah, thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.